The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn your Bible to James chapter 5, this final part in our James series. Yeah, I think many people in our culture have an attitude towards prayer of, well, it can't hurt. Kind of a, well, hedge your bets in a difficult world. But many believers want to know, is prayer effective? Well, Jesus and his followers clearly believe that God answers prayer. Prayer works. But what is effective prayer? James gives us insights, and as he closes out this letter, he focuses on prayer as his closing topic to help us better understand what is effective prayer for the purposes of advancing God's kingdom. I read James 5, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. In recent years, more and more as I tackle a home improvement project or a car repair of some kind, I consult YouTube videos to go to the masters who can give me advice and guidance on how to be effective at solving my problem. I've learned not to waste my time uh, with frustrated burnt energy trying to figure out things on my own. I go to those who have great skill and experience who can show me a a more effective way to solve a practical problem. For me, this passage, James is like a YouTube master on prayer, a seasoned saint, one of the apostles and the brother of the Lord Jesus who can help us make our prayer lives more effective. But what he offers us is not a technique. 
He's not given us insights in how we might bend the ear of heaven to our will by some secret formula. Rather, prayer is a posture, it's an attitude, a disposition, and it's rooted in what we believe about God, about the world, about our lives, and about what is truly important. I think many of us would admit that our prayer lives are not what they should be or what, they, what we would like them to be. But I'm convinced that if we truly believed in the power and effectiveness of prayer, we would pray. Either pray more or pray more effectively and, and focused on the things of God. It requires strong conviction and a deep dependency upon God to override our natural apathy, our busyness and distraction, and other things that characterize our sometimes half-hearted prayer lives. I'd like us to focus on three things from this final passage in James. That prayer is real, it's relational, and redemptive. First, prayer is real. James and the apostles, and for all of us, find that that prayer is a matter of addressing very real and practical needs that we face every day. Prayer is the faith-filled response to life. Prayer is practical, and prayer is also regular, something that should be part of our day-in, day-out practice. Now, I can appreciate James's down-to-earth questions. He asks, is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. Are you sick? Call the leaders of the church to come and pray for you. Do you have something to celebrate? Well, rejoice. Praise God. He goes over the highs and lows of the Christian life. He enters us into life's joys and sorrows, bringing these things as all practical matters that we can converse with our Heavenly Father, that the Heavenly Father is concerned about the nitty gritty details of life. No need is too great, and no matter is too small to bring to the attention of our Heavenly Father. And here, James gives practical counsel to the elders to gather with the sick, to anoint them and pray over them. And we actually will be doing this very practice after the service tonight with uh, a woman in our church who is suffering an ailment. And when we do such a, a, a gathering for anointing and prayer, it's a reminder that our bodies are frail. We are vulnerable to disease and aging. We live in a cursed world filled with hurricanes, cancer, accidents, arthritis. All these things remind us that our bodies and all of creation await redemption and restoration to come. Now, I would add that as the pastors and the elders gather with somebody to anoint them with oil and pray over them, Uh, is an act of obedience. It's an act of faith in trusting in God's power to heal according to His will. But I would offer two dangers uh, to, to guard against with this practice. The first danger is doubt, that we are called to pray with faith that God can and will deliver the suffering saint. But a second danger is demand demanding as though God owes us, having an entitlement mentality. We, we know full well that God can deliver people in peculiar and even miraculous ways, but He does not always deliver His people. His saints do fail to recover from certain diseases. They go on to die and enter 
into his glory. Jesus healed many people in his life and itinerant ministry, but he did not heal everybody. And even those he did heal, and even those he raised back from the dead, went on to die and to enter into his glorious presence. I love the faith and the boldness of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrews who found themselves standing before King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And these men stood and defied the king under threat of death, refusing to bow down and worship a golden idolatrous statue. And the words of these men just ring throughout history as they testified that their God was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. But even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship your idol. And I believe we need that same spirit, that the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the boldness to stand firm in an evil world, and yet trusting our God to deliver in his own timing, in his own way, not according to our demands, but according to his perfect will for us, and that sometimes we are called to suffer and we are called to go through hard times, and prayer is what sustains us uh, during difficulty. But prayer is also to be regular, not a mere seasonal practice. Many of us pray in fits and starts. We go through seasons where our prayer life is healthy. We go through seasons that are more like a drought. When pain and suffering gets our attention, sometimes we respond in prayer. When something wonderful happens, something unexpected, something we didn't deserve, we offer praise and rejoicing before the Lord. But prayer while it ought to be regular, it's not a matter of rigid routine or mere rote discipline, that we do need some routine and we do need discipline in our lives. And some of us are better at this than others. Prayer, though, is a, is a mindset, is a daily awareness that the world is broken in need of redemption, that, it, that we are broken and in need of God's grace and redemption, that we depend on, on him desperately every single day. When you go to a mall, you oftentimes look to a map that has a star that says, you are here. And prayer, for me, it's like that. It's a daily wake-up call to remind us where we are, how, how we live between the first and second comings of Christ. We live in a world where the enemy is defeated, but yet not yet removed from this world. Daily, regular prayer should be like breathing. We cannot live spiritually without it. We don't wait necessarily for a designated time to pray, though it is good to schedule times for intensive, intimate prayer with the Father. My my wife and I, we talk every day. And we would feel like something was missing if we didn't. Now sometimes, oftentimes, the things we talk about are mundane, mere scheduling activities, carting the kids around, But there are other times that our discussion is more intimate, more personal to address the matters of life between us. When I go, when I travel, I make it a point to call her every day. It's something I learned from a coworker back in my my business days between college and seminary. And this man, who I don't believe was a Christian, but had coined this, this, this practice of calling his wife every day to stay in touch. And I believe that there's something true here about applying to our prayer lives. Do you make it a point every day to talk with your Heavenly Father? Whether it's formal or informal, 
a time to check in, a time to share your heart with the God who knows you and loves you. Jesus offered much practical guidance on prayer. At one point, he told his disciples to not ramble on as though God's going to hear you by your many words. He knows what you need before you ask them. And yes, God likes to be asked. But keep it clear, simple, and direct, praying with humble faith. And when you pray, pray for an audience of one, for God, not to hear yourself talk and not to show off before others. Jesus warned against those who would be pretentious, who would, would offer their eloquent words for others to hear as he criticized the hypocrites of his day. And there are often many occasions for public prayer in worship and in prayer meetings and small group meetings. But Jesus challenges his disciples to go into their private room to pray, indicating that the true measure of our prayer lives is what we do in private, alone with our Heavenly Father. And Jesus also taught us to pray and to not give up. He told a number of parables. One about a man who was interrupted in the middle of the night by a friend knocking on his door asking for food because a traveler had come to his home. And, and the man did not want to get up and wake up his children and meet his neighbor's need, but because of his neighbor's persistence, he got up and met his need. Likewise, the poor woman who was sought justice from the unjust judge continued to persist in beseeching him day after day after day until the unjust judge was just worn out and gave in to grant this woman justice. And the point of those parables is that God is not begrudging. He is not stingy, but a generous God who loves to give good gifts to his children. But he invites us to be persistent, to not give up, to continue coming before his throne of grace. And our Heavenly Father gives His Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So what are the things that we ought to pray for? Well, what ought we not to pray for? What we can pray for is legion. But James, for his part, mentions suffering, celebration, sickness, issues of sin, relational brokenness, the weather, spiritual wandering. It's just a sampling of the kinds of things that are on his heart that we ought to be concerned about as well in our own prayer lives. And I would challenge us tonight that as we consider prayer to be consistent, but also to have variety. You might be praying persistently for a lost loved one, someone that you want to come to know Jesus Christ as his or her Savior, and that's good. Do you pray for others as well? Do you pray for our ministries? Do you pray for various missionaries. Perhaps you pray for the sick, the suffering, those that you care deeply about, and that is fine and good. Do you also pray for relational health, spiritual health, as you also pray for those to be made physically well? I would suggest that most of us need to get a little more organized to make a prayer chart have a journal of some kind, to be specific and focused. My, my wife and I try to be somewhat structured in our prayer lives. We have seven children, so that's one for each day of the week that we can focus on. On Monday night, 
family devotions, we pray for missionaries. It's Missionary Monday. You know, some nights we pray for the church. We pray for our government leaders. We pray for our extended families. We try to get categorical to, help, to have some, some routine, some rhythm in our prayer lives so we can remember to pray for the many things that uh, need prayer. Well, when should we pray? Well, when should we not pray? Uh, pray early in the morning before the day gets too distracting. Pray before bed. Pray before your meals. Set particular times to pray where you can have more concentrated focus on the things that are burdening your heart. When, when you're tempted to tell somebody that you will pray for him or her, pray for him or her right there because you'll probably forget to pray for them later. So take the time to pray for people in need as the need arises. Pray when driving. Just keep your eyes open. The same applies to walking, going on prayer walks. It's okay to pray with your eyes open. These are things that uh, we need to think about, how we can lay them before our Heavenly Father. You've heard many things tonight you can pray for in Bumi Mukuku, the ministry in Kibera. You can pray for our Congolese ministry. We have uh, several Muslim background people coming in our Congolese community. Uh, one who even professed faith in Christ uh, shared her testimony of coming to faith in Christ recently, just, just this morning. Uh, there are many outreach opportunities in our church. A lot of you are, are involved in other ministries beyond the scope of this church. Plenty of needs for prayer in your life all around you. So prayer is real, but prayer is also relational. We worship a personal God, a relational God, who is not a mere blessing dispenser in the sky. We must approach him as a real person because God is a person. And prayer is relational both horizontally and vertically. The text exhorts us to, when, when we are sick, to call the elders to anoint us and pray for us, telling us that, that prayer and healing is a community effort. He goes on, James does, to command us to confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another, so that we may be healed, that, that God responds when the community gathers around one another to pray for healing and strengthening and for forgiveness. Prayer is vital for the healing and the strengthening of the body of Christ and the equipping of the saints. And these and other one-anothering commands in the New Testament remind us of the importance of gathering regularly with God's people. It's hard to keep these commands if you're isolated. That you need to be around God's people on a regular basis so that you know each other, so that you can trust each other, so that you can bear your burdens with one another. And this could be in a formal home fellowship group, but small groups also form around Bible studies, around the choir, around ESL ministry together, other forms of outreach ministry. And I like to notice, note how this passage emphasizes forgiveness, reminding us that as believers we need to be good confessors and that those who fail to regularly confess sin are lacking an awareness of their own depravity. Self-righteousness and spiritual blindness are deadly maladies in the body of Christ. Jesus referred to God as Abba, and he invites us, he welcomes us to come before God 
as our Heavenly Father. Scripture says that Jesus opened up a new and living way for us to come before the throne of grace. Roman Catholicism teaches that one must go to a priest to confess sin and receive absolution. It's also their practice to pray to Mary or the saints. And somehow, if you pray through a, another holy person, you can get access to God. But Scripture teaches that there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us access to the throne of our Heavenly Father. And that He has granted us forgiveness, the re- restoration to our God. The passage says that the one who has committed sins will be forgiven as he goes humbly before the throne of God's grace. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is Jacob's as he's about to face his brother Esau. You remember the story how Jacob fled, had to flee from home after stealing the birthright of his brother Esau? And God met Jacob in a dream while he was asleep there in the wild. And in response, Jacob prays. But his prayer to God at that point was very more, more like a manipulative bargain. You know, God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this for you. It's, it's a crisis prayer. But years, many years later, as Jacob is facing the greatest crisis of his life, he's humble. He's trusting the Lord. He admits that he is unworthy. He is grateful and thankful for all that God has done for him. And he's very direct with God, asking the Lord to deliver him from his brother's wrath. He's not bargaining, but rather laying claim to God's promise to bless him and make him a great multitude. And so it's a great example of relational prayer that is both humble and faithful So prayer ought not to be mechanical. It's not bargaining with God, not brokering a deal, but it's a matter of being real, direct, approaching God as a person with with deepest respect. But it's cutting through pretense. It's no use hiding things from God. God knows you completely. God knows you better than you know, know yourself. And so coming to God clean, without pretense, to bear your heart, your mess, your fears and disappointments. The psalmist reveal every human emotion imaginable. I like how David words it in Psalm 62. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Thirdly, prayer is redemptive. Prayer is the means by which God's kingdom advances. Prayer is restorational and transformational. James says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And if the sick have committed sins, then they will be forgiven. Jesus, of course, healed many people, and he also forgave people their sins. You remember the occasion Jesus told a paralyzed man who had come for healing, that his sins were forgiven. And this statement scandalized the religious leaders because it sounded to them like blasphemy. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, responded, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? And so Jesus, to demonstrate 
that he had authority to forgive sins, he commanded the paralyzed man to rise, take up his mat, and walk. You know, sometimes we can be overly focused on our physical needs, healing, money, some sort of provision, and other things, and these are not insignificant matters. But James seems more concerned, more concerned about forgiveness, about relational restoration, about matters of spirit and restoration between sinners and the living God. God is very concerned that sinners be restored into a right relationship with Him. And James here ties together healing and forgiveness. Prayer is needed to bring sinners to conviction, that they may acknowledge their sin and confess it. Prayer is vital in the process of repentance that sinners turn away from stubborn patterns of sin. And prayer is absolutely necessary for forgiveness, to remove the bitter seeds of hurt and pain, to heal the hurt the wound, the, so that the wounded victim may offer mercy and grace to the sinner, that same mercy and grace that he or she has received from the Father. As a young believer, I learned verse 16 in the NIV, which reads, the prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. God responds to the righteous. He responds with great power to those who pray to him with, with great faith and humility. And verses 17 and 18 go on to illustrate this in the life of Elijah, the man who prayed and held back rain from Israel for three and a half years. And then after defeating the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed and the Lord brought back the rain to a parched, scorched land. God uses the prayers of his saints to draw whole people groups back to himself, whether they be backslidden Americans who are mostly nominally Christian, whether they be unreached people groups in South Asia who are first now hearing the gospel after many millennia in spiritual darkness. When we come to the last two verses of our passage, which bring together redemption and restoration to a climax, it emphasizes how, pra- how, how prayer transforms people's lives, especially people who are in freefall, wandering away from the faith. One of our favorite hymns, How Firm... A foundation reminds us how we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. People need prayer to protect them, protect them from making shipwreck of their spiritual lives, from wandering into addiction, being seduced into adultery, being deceived by idolatry and heresy. We are our brother's keepers. And we are called to pray, to be engaged in people's lives in such a way to help protect them and protect us from wandering away. We are called in Scripture to encourage one another, to ask questions of one another, to help one another persevere with lives of spiritual and integrity. But we know that God is about the transformation of business, of making us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, by delivering us from darkness into light, changing 
our attitudes, our behaviors, our lifestyles, our speech, our thought lives, transforming our priorities with time, money, and relationships that might be kingdom-centered. Yes, the prayer of the righteous has great effect. But this passage points to the one, the one who was truly righteous, the one who surpassed all the righteousness of, of all the saints, Elijah and other, other heroes of the faith. Jesus is the one true righteous one who was perfect in all of his ways, who prayed much, withdrawing to desolate places before choosing his disciples, prior to facing temptation in the hours preceding his greatest trial, being subjected to brutal torture and death by crucifixion. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be unified and that we would be effective in spreading his Father's glory in his physical absence. But now in his glory, Jesus prays at the Father's right hand, interceding on our behalf that we might resist temptation, that we might live lives that are faithful to him, that we might testify about him, making his name great on the earth. And when we pray, we join him in that great and glorious work of furthering his kingdom. It's Jesus who makes our prayers truly effective. When we are confused, when we are overwhelmed by life's circumstances, when we feel like our prayers are not even rising above the ceiling of our homes, Jesus makes our prayers powerful and effective as we hold on to him with humble faith. The message of James is that God gives grace to the humble. So humble yourself in the sight of God, and he indeed will raise you up. Let us pray. We praise you, our great God and Father, for giving us in the Lord Jesus Christ an advocate, a mediator, the one who stands before you on our behalf, the one who makes us holy and righteous, who makes our prayers effective before you. We give him the glory, and we pray for your grace and strength as we enter into the world this week to live as a testimony to your greatness and power in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.